Mark chapter 15 for tonight's study. We did a reading of this chapter on Sunday, uh, but as I mentioned then, uh, there's so much in this small chapter that it's power packed and worth uh, time to spend just thinking through and meditating on what's, what's going on here at the cross. Uh, Mark chapter 15. So we pick up where we left off last Wednesday in verse one of chapter 15. Now keep in mind, this is after the Last Supper. Um, you know, the, um, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane there uh, in chapter 14. And um, remember, there's these trials. There were gonna be three trials that were Jewish and three trials that would be Roman. Um, why did they need uh, Jewish trials and Roman trials? Why did they have to do both of those? Well, that's an important thing. And actually, one of those uh, check boxes that we talk about, uh, the prophetic nature of how Jesus, everything that happened with Jesus, the timing of so many things. For Jesus to be the Messiah, talked about in the Old Testament, there's about 300 boxes that needed to be perfectly checked that could, could no way have been uh, otherwise uh, you know, fulfilled in any single person. Uh, and it's so profound that even to this day that the Jews largely don't think that Jesus is the Messiah, um, and yet uh, their Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, so boldly predicts and proclaims who he would be, and Jesus checks all those boxes. Um, interesting sideline story, by the way, um, on this whole thing, where uh, the Jewish uh, trials versus the Roman trials the reason why that happened is because in AD 6, uh, the Jews lost their sovereignty as a nation. Um, you might say, for you Bible people, you'll get this, uh, the scepter of power had departed from them. Um, now you say, what's that all about, the scepter being departed? Well, it's a prophecy. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 49, uh, Jacob, the father, you know, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob had his 12 sons, and the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when Jacob was kind of on his deathbed, he was divvying out the blessing, blessings and the curses on the 12 tribes of Israel. When he came to the tribe of Judah, he made an interesting statement about the tribe of Judah, which uh, anybody famous come out of the tribe of Judah? Yeah, yeah, Jesus uh, was of the tribe of Judah. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. But um, check this out. I'll just show you the verse. You can jot it down in your notes if you want, but it's Genesis 49, 10. This is the word that kind of came out of Jacob's mouth during that time of blessing. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people be. So, so this is a, a prediction that it's a little cryptic in the Old Testament, uh, you know, Hebrew, and, and even in the translation of the King James, it's a little cryptic of what's saying. But the scepter of power is kind of the idea. That is the lawgiver. The, the, this prophecy in, you know, basic terms is saying that um, the power of sovereignty as a nation will not depart from Israel until... Uh, the Messiah, that, that is Shiloh, which means peace, uh, will come. Uh, and then uh, unto him, the, the Messiah, shall be uh, the gathering of the people. So this is kind of an interesting thing. And so, so they were thinking that, um, good, the Messiah is gonna come before the sovereignty of, of Israel is lost. And that's the way they believed it. So when AD 6 rolled around and the Romans crushed Jerusalem, crushed the Jews, they had, they, they, by the way, they'd been under the iron fist of Rome for a long time before that, but it was uh, uh, right around AD 6 when the Romans took away the Jews' power to govern themselves. Now you say, well, whoopee deal, big deal, whatever, they were, that happened throughout history. But why then did all the old elders of Israel and the fathers of Israel in AD 6 when that happened, why did they weep and wail and rip their clothes in Jerusalem? Was it because they lost their sovereignty? Yes, but more importantly, it's almost like they said, our Bible was wrong. You know, the Hebrew Bible saying that the scepter of power would not depart from Judah um, uh, until, uh, until Shiloh come. The, the, the Messiah would come first, then that other would happen. And in their view, um, but guess what? Who was running around as a little kid in AD 6? The Messiah, Jesus. 
Isn't it funny? Not that far from that, that Jesus the Messiah would be in Jerusalem confounding the, the religious intellectuals. Um, Jesus was uh, the Messiah and he did come uh, before. He was born before this uh, scepter was passed from Judah. So um, this is an interesting thing. This is the Jews were in great despair for decades. They were in great despair thinking our Hebrew Bible misguided us. We must have heard from God wrongly uh, because the, the Messiah has not yet come and the scepter of power is gone. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder if there's things like that going on today. Do you ever wonder like, you know, if, if we are living in the last times um, and the rapture of the church is just around the corner, that means the Antichrist is probably on the world scene today. Now, one of the things that I think people make a mistake is trying to identify the Antichrist. I think it's Hillary, or I think it's <laughs> Donald Trump, or the Pope, or like you'll hear people say stuff like that. And can I just say, resist the temptation to uh, believe, you know, you, you're gonna know who the Messiah is. Um, you better hope we don't know who the, pardon me, the Antichrist. You better hope we don't know who the Antichrist is. Um, because um, First Thessalonians, uh, pardon me, Second Thessalonians uh, chapter two tells us the Antichrist will not be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. So we're not gonna know who the Antichrist is. We're gonna be raptured first. Then the Antichrist is gonna be, read Second Thessalonians chapter two. It's a pretty cool little section of scripture there. So I'm trying to identify, but it is interesting to think if the rapture of the church is in the next you know, couple decades, which I think it very well could be, um, uh, that, that means the Antichrist is somewhere running around in the world today. Um, so that's interesting. Um, but that's what was going on prophetically. Jesus was already on the scene when the scepter had, um, had departed from Israel. Now that's why the Jews, they lost the power to govern themselves. So really the Jewish trials in, in the um, high priests, the Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, those trials were kangaroo courts. They were, they were worthless. It was just kind of like Jews entertaining themselves. And the Romans, they really could care less what the Jews were doing unless it caused trouble for them. And so, um, you know, the Jews, they still gave them uh, sort of a poser authority. Well, if you wanna have a trial against this guy, whatever, but try not to make it our problem because uh, then it'll be our decision. And that's kind of the way it was a deal that was worked out with the Jewish leaders at the time. So the first three child were sort of kangaroo court trials the Jews were just sort of trying to show their power by saying, you know, we're gonna try Jesus and he's spoken blasphemy, they said, uh, and all that stuff. But once they decided to crucify him, they really couldn't do it. They had to go through the Roman rule. And so the, uh, the next, um, you know, of the trials would include Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate again. So there'd be three trials. Uh, we read that most uh, defined in Luke 22. Luke's gospel gives us all that detail. Mark's gospel, however, is the condensed version of that. So you don't get all that stuff in the gospel of Mark. You just kind of get some high points from Mark. So let's take a look here in verse one. It says, and straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. So the Jewish trials are over. They bound him up and sent him off to Pilate. Um, one of the things I touched on, uh, I, I felt like uh, recently, I, I felt like I just kind of quickly went over it, but um, if there was ever a time to go over this, I think Wednesday night's probably a good one. And I wanna take a, just a little closer look, if you'd allow me, um, at the, uh, this idea of Jesus being bound. This also checks a box. Uh, because he, the Old Testament says the Messiah would be bound. And there's a, there's a beautiful picture of that in the story of Genesis chapter 22. In fact, would you turn there with me? Flip over to Genesis 22, uh, and I wanna show you, um, oh, there's, there's so many things we could talk about here about the correlations, how Genesis 22 is this amazing picture of Jesus going to the cross. And uh, I love how the Bible is so rich and multi-layered, multi-faceted. I just wanna show you some of that uh, here in, in a little greater detail than I've covered before. So um, in Genesis chapter 22, there's this strange story of Abraham uh, and Isaac. It says in Genesis 22, verse one, um, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him. Now the word tempt is also, it's a test is the better perhaps word. And uh, God said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here am I. 
And he said, take now thine son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And um, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together, and they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar of the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is to say this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Of course, Jehovah-Jireh means God uh, the provider, or God will provide. Here in this little uh, chapter uh, 22, verses one through 14, we see amazing, amazing pictures of, of Jesus, or a type. Isaac is a type. Um, the Greek word is typos. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, um, Paul told the Corinthians, don't you understand the Old Testament is typos, uh, or examples, illustrations of New Testament truths. And then he gave a few examples of examples. He said, remember the rock that was there that was smitten and water came out there uh, in the Old Testament? He said, that rock was Christ. Um, see, that's where, you know, these churches that uh, don't, they, they, like, you know, uh, Andrew Stanley, who said, you know, uh, almost notoriously now, uh, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That's what he said. Now he's trying to backpedal because everybody was like, that's kind of heresy to say chalk off the half the Bible. Um, and so he's trying to, well, I didn't really mean get rid of, you know, but, um, but that's really what he does. He doesn't really do Old Testament stuff as much because uh, that's for the Jews. The Old Testament book's old and outdated. Wait a minute. The church that doesn't have the Old Testament, they're missing so much. Like you're missing God's holy word. Don't ever chalk off the Old Testament. Let me just show you right here how we understand so much by just reading the Old Testament story here. Um, there's actually a bunch of things. Even before Genesis 22, there's already a couple things that are kind of like Jesus the Messiah. Isaac, his birth was miraculous. Um, just like Jesus's birth was miraculous. If you know the story, Abraham and Sarah were you know, uh, 90 and 100 years old by the time it all came, came to pass. That's miraculous. Um, I haven't seen too many 90-year-old women in the uh, birthing unit there in the hospital uh, <laughs> lately. Um, also, Isaac was the son of a promise given that all nations would be blessed. In the same way, Jesus, his promise of the Messiah would, that all nations would be blessed. I am. So even before Genesis 22, there's already some correlations there. But in Genesis 22, I wanna show you Jesus just here in this story, if you'd allow me. I'm gonna try to do this quickly. Um, the first thing that we kind of notice here is uh, this language of thine only son. And if you know the story of Abraham, it really wasn't his only son. And God says this in verse one. He says it in verse 12, you know, that you're giving your only son. Um, so did God forget about Ishmael? Um, no, or yes, depending on how you look at it. Um, Ishmael was the result of Abraham's horrible sin, if you remember that. He went and slept with Hagar, the horrible um, the Egyptian. The, sorry, remember the, anybody remember the cartoon, Hagar the Horrible? Uh, anyway, sorry. 
uh, but uh, Hagar was this Egyptian woman that kind of tagged along when, he, when Abraham went down to Egypt. Well, she just wasn't even supposed to do that. But, um, but he sinned and then he slept with Hagar and then Ishmael was his first son. So why does God keep saying your only son? Well, remember one thing about the Lord, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he remembers our sins no more. So Abraham, by having you know, a first son with Ishmael, he was ruining a picture. That's important to know. Uh, he was ruining a picture, that's why it's called Sid. He missed the mark on that one. So in the story, however, God doesn't even acknowledge Ishmael. Now you say, oh, poor Ishmael. Well, Ishmael also got blessed in Genesis 16, 12, if you remember, um, he'd be blessed, but he'd also be, anybody remember the word? Wild, he'd be wild and blessed. I've been to the Middle East where the Arab nation, that's the descendants of Ishmael. It's a wild culture, man. We go around those streets in, in, uh, you know, uh, in Jordan and all, and the Arabs are riding Arabian horses. It's just wild, there's scarves flapping in the wind. It's, it's a wild country out there uh, and wild group. Um, the Bible's right about that. Uh, but as it turns out, thine only son, that's the first thing we note, uh, only son, verse two, um, number two, it's the, uh, it's the son whom, uh, that was beloved, the beloved son. And he says, whom thou lovest. Even as God says of Jesus, the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, and, and it's the same thing. Uh, so the father's about to give his beloved son. That's exactly what God did with Jesus. Uh, number three on the list, um, the Mount was the same. Mount Moriah is the Mount uh, uh, where Jerusalem was built upon. Um, in fact, in 2 Chronicles 3.1, Solomon built the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah, it says. So the Temple Mount is on Moriah. And if you go just outside of the gate of, of that mountain, the highest point of that is Mount Golgotha or Mount Calvary. Um, even to this day in Jerusalem, that's why people believe Jesus was crucified on that area. Um, so uh, the same exact geographical location where Isaac was about to be you know, killed by the father, so to Jesus on the very same ge geographical location, only thousands of years later. Like that's it's a coincidence? No, God wins. Number four on the list. Um, uh, he, you know, they both went into Jerusalem. Look at verse three here. It says, um, they rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass and took two of his men. So there was a donkey in the story, just like in Jesus. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're going up the Mount Moriah with the donkey, just like Jesus. Um, and then number five, they took two young men with them. Uh, that's interesting there in uh, verse three. Just like two men were right next to Jesus. Who were they? The two thieves on the cross. There's two men right next to them. Just like in this story, there's some interesting things there. I'm just going quick through this. Number, number six, uh, there were three days journey, it says. On, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. There in verse four. Um, Isaac had a three-day hike to Mount Moriah. Jesus had a three-day journey from uh, the cross to the grave to the resurrection. It was a three-day. You could also talk about the various threes in the gospel story. We could go on and on about that. Jesus uh, rose on the third day. Jesus's public ministry lasted three years. Um, you know, there's some interesting tie-ins there, but <clears throat> that, that three days is, is linked. Um, number seven, um, it was in the prime of his life. In verse five, uh, he's called a lad there. Um, uh, and that's interesting. It's also um, mentioned in verse 12. Uh, you know, lay not thy hand upon the lad. And so when you were a kid, you colored the Sunday school story with him being a little laddie boy, uh, seven years old in the story. But he, the, the word there in the original Hebrew is he was a young man, uh, probably in his young 30s is the idea there. Um, just like Jesus was 33 when he went to the cross, so too um, the, this guy was, you know. Now, a lad is all perspective. Uh, you know, I think of a 30-year-old now as a little whippersnapper because uh, I'm old, so it's all perspective. But um, that, there's some interesting things that, that we learned on Sunday, if you recall. The fact that Isaac was in his 30s meant that he had to be willing to be bound up um, and, uh, and go with what Abraham was doing. Do you think Isaac could have taken Abraham if they were wrestling? Uh, Abraham was 120 years old by this time, or 130 almost. Uh, um, so uh, I think Isaac could have you know, uh, uh, you know, overpowered him if he wanted to. But that implies that Isaac went willingly. He went up the mountain willingly, and he allowed his dad to tie him up willingly. 
um, which is, is uh, part of that story we learned about Jesus. Um, also, here's one that's kind of interesting. Number eight, Abraham believed in the resurrection. Huh? Did you notice that Abraham, he, his words are a little interesting when he talks to his son. Like for example, in verse five, Abraham said unto his young men, the two guys, abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Um, he, he didn't say, I will come, Isaac's not gonna come back. Um, he says, we are gonna come back to you. Um, and Abraham believed that. In fact, um, we know uh, even more about this. Uh, you think, Brett, you're making a stretch on this whole thing. I don't know if this is a type of Jesus and I don't know if they, he was really thinking that Isaac would have been resurrected. Um, I'm 100% sure that's true. Well, Brett, good for you, but I don't know if I believe it. No, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Um, where else do we read about this story? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just show you uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of faith, a uh, great chapter, Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Same language. Of whom it was said that Isaac shall be thy seed, uh, uh, Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting, look at verse 19 here. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. The word figure there is that, that idea of the typos or a type or an illustration. Hebrews 11 tells us the story of Isaac is a type or a figure of Jesus Christ. Um, and even that, see, have you ever wondered, uh, I remember when I was a little kid in Sunday school, I was thinking, how could a father plunge a knife into his son on an altar? Um, and you know, the Bible never asks humans to make sacrifice of humans. Um, uh, except for in this story, it's the first time, but God doesn't even let it go. It doesn't even let it happen. Um, and you think, well, okay, it's nice that God was not gonna let this happen, but Abraham was gonna plunge the knife into his son. But Abraham, called the father of faith, by the way, I think the reason he was willing to do it is because of what this says. He knew that God would be able to raise him up, even from the dead. Um, <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons why Abraham, this is why he makes Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Abraham being the father of faith because he believed in the resurrection. That, uh, uh, so, so we know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed in the resurrection, but he also, we also learn from Hebrews 11 that this is in fact a picture of Jesus. So I'm not just making this stuff up. Uh, what number am I in? Uh, nine, I think, here we go. Uh, wood for the sacrifice, verse six. Isaac carried the wood, uh, as it says there in verse six. Um, he laid the, laid the wood upon his son Isaac, um, uh, which even as Jesus, um, John 19, 17, bearing his cross, he went to the place of the skull in the Hebrews called Golgotha. Number 10, uh, Abraham put fire in, in Isaac's hand. The father put fire in the hand. Um, they carried fire. They didn't have Bic lighters, so they would actually wrap fire and coals and stuff up and haul them around to uh, be able to light fires and stuff like that. Um, but it says there in, in verse six, you know, he puts the wood upon Isaac and then he took, took the fire in his hand, um, which that, that speaks of judgment, by the way, in the Bible, always fire is a type of wrath and judgment from God. Um, notice there's a knife involved, verse six. Um, some scholars have said in the typology here, when was a knife involved? Well, Peter chopped off, you know, Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. But um, some say even as uh, you know, Isaac was about to have a metal stuck in his side with a knife, uh, it's a type of the spear that was, gonna, that was used there on the cross that Jesus would be stuck with a sharp object, a spear. Um, so they see the type of the knife as the spear. Number 12, God will provide himself, it says a lamb. Um, he doesn't say there, some, people, some of the newer translations tried to clean this up because they didn't think it made sense. Um, but it's not God will provide for himself a lamb. That's not what it says. In the original language, it says, like, like in the King James, um, verse eight there, Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. He didn't make a, a blunder. Um, maybe he made a blunder, but little did he know God was making the words come out of his mouth because it was prophetic uh, in that God would provide himself as the sacrifice which is such a, a profound prophetic. Uh, so Abraham was looking prophetically toward God's fulfillment of all his promises 
especially the, you know, the coming of the Redeemer. Um, number 13, we can just go on and on with these. Uh, uh, the father is orchestrating everything. Verse nine, they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, laid wood in order, bound up his son. Like, like he, Abraham's doing all the orchestration of everything, just like God the father orchestrated all the events uh, to bring Jesus to the cross. We read that and see that in the story. And even as Jesus was praying in the garden, Lord, is there any other way? But the father said, you know, I'm orchestrating everything to come to the way it needs to go. And so Jesus submitted to the father. Jesus said, I always do the will of the father. That's what Jesus did. So we see the same kind of, uh, you know, now number 14 is what brought us here to begin with. <laughs> the one little tiny point that he was bound, verse nine. Um, it says, and he bound Isaac, his son. That's our scripture in Mark chapter uh, 15, verse one. They bound him um, and we see Jesus bound. Um, and uh, I just wanted to um, show you this whole thing. Uh, verse 15, uh, verse uh, 13, um, there's a prophecy, you know, uh, it says that, uh, there would be a ram found in the thicket there. Um, and that's speaking of, of uh, pointing to Jesus. This was not the fulfillment of what Abraham said that God will provide himself a lamb. The lamb of God would still to come, but the lamb would be ultimately Jesus. Um, here, by the way, it's at this moment when the ram is caught in the thicket, do you think Abraham was a little relieved when God said, whoa, stop, and then the ram's rustling in the thicket? It was, I think, here's where Abraham gets his clearest glimpse of the coming Messiah. And it might be one of the clearest glimpses of the coming Messiah in all the Old Testament when there was a ram in Isaac's place that came in substitutionarily. Vicarious atonement. Remember, we talked about that on Sunday. Um, and, uh, and so this is an important part of the whole thing. Number 16, uh, Jehovah Jireh, which means my provider. Um, and this speaks of Jesus. Je you know, the God, the Father is the provider. Jehovah uh, Jireh is that word. But Romans chapter eight, verse 31 and 32, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Lord will provide us uh, that which we need. Why? Because if he gave us his only begotten son, what else would he, you know, why would he hinder us giving us anything else? I love how Paul uses the logic of the, the, provide, uh, the provider uh, but, but that provision, Jehovah Jireh, is perfectly uh, sealed when God the Father provided for you and me the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Anyway, I went, sorry to go over all that, but uh, it, it, I know it has nothing, well, little, one little thing to do with Mark chapter 15. Uh, let's go back to there. Where were we? Verse one. <clears throat> it says there that he was bound uh, which was one of the 16. By the way, there's more. There's more things we could talk about. Uh, you know, Isaac asked a question. Hey, here's the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Um, just like Jesus asked a question on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which was a fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm. But we can just go on and on with those things. But uh, you can study that further if you wish. But um, all that to say, uh, do you see what I'm, why I'm saying that churches that don't go to the Old Testament, they're missing out on, it's almost like uh, just filling in all the gaps that you might have reading the, Old, the New Testament. The Old Testament uh, just kind of fills in everything in a beautiful kind of way. And when you see that prophecy fulfilled, it only increases faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Don't ever forsake the Old Testament. Uh, we need to do a balance. That's why we go through the whole Bible. That's why when we're studying in the New Testament, you'll always hear me going back and uh, you know, looking at the Old Testament because it's so rich. Um, anyway, now, so Jesus is now led away, bound. Verse two, here we go. Well, now we're flying. Um, it says, <laughs> says in verse two, and Pilate asked him, art thou king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, thou sayest it. Um, now, of course, Jesus is answering rightly, uh, but it's like one of those questions. Are you king of the Jews? Yep. Um, but he could have said, are you king of the Romans? Yep. Are you the king of the universe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> are, are you king of the world? Yes. King of all creation? Yep. Like Jesus is the Lord of all, king of kings, Lord of lords. That's Jesus. But, but the reason this whole king of the Jews things, Pilate's gonna use this derogatorily later in this chapter, we'll show you that. 
how that applies. But this idea of king of the Jews, Pilate's gonna uh, play on that. Uh, and uh, we'll see why in a, in a minute. So verse three, and the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again saying, answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Pilate's thinking, man, what is the deal? This guy doesn't even try to defend himself. What's going on? Um, do you know there's a time to be like Jesus in this particular notion? There's a time to not defend yourself. Um, when would that be? Well, first of all, when the Lord leads you to not defend yourself, that's kind of a big thing. But, um, but I think there's a lot of people that waste energy, effort, and even breath trying to defend themselves. And I think it has to do, sometimes at least in my lifetime and just you know, kind of reading the scriptures and seeing how it works out, um, the reason Jesus isn't giving them any information is these guys could care less about the truth. Um, Pilate says, don't you see all these accusations? But Jesus knows they're all made up. There's nothing even true about those accusations. So he's not even gonna waste his breath talking about them. Um, and um, and uh, by the way, he's fulfilling scripture Isaiah 53, seven, we read on Sunday. Remember it says he'll be led like a sheep to the shears, deaf and dumb, not, not saying a word. He will open not his mouth, uh, it says there in Isaiah. And that's exactly what happens here. He's just not gonna defend himself. Um, some of you try to defend yourselves. You know, um, what do you do when you see the trolls in the comments of your Instagram post? Uh, do you defend, defend, defend? Well, most of those people could care less about what you're saying. I always, it kind of breaks my heart when you know, we see some Athey Creek post about something we're doing or scripture or verse, and there's always the troll on there that's gonna say something, you know, but those guys don't really care. They're not really seeking the Lord. They're just trying to be a troll. They're trying to ruffle Christians' feathers and they don't really care about the truth. Uh, be careful, don't. I think there's a time to just be silent and say, you know what, I'm not gonna even do. Now, there are times where Jesus would answer questions very uh, lengthily uh, when people really cared and where they were actually asking a real question, but these questions weren't honest questions, and so Jesus doesn't really uh, play the game with them. Um, the, when people were wanting to really hear Jesus, he would glance, gladly answer and share truth. Um, but all that to say, verse six, it goes on. Now, that feast, feast of Passover, um, he, Pilate, uh, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. This was a custom, and you kind of lose that in the King James uh, translation here. It's, it's, it's not like he just did this one time. This was a yearly uh, thing where um, you know, Pontius Pilate made it, made it a thing uh, to do this. Um, now, uh, question, um, was Pilate a good leader? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, we don't know a lot about Pontius Pilate. Almost everything we know about Pontius Pilate is from the Bible. Um, there was no um, record of Pontius Pilate anywhere else in the world. And so typically, uh, all the, this is what we always see, very typical, uh, all of college uh, academics and all the so-called uh, professors, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They always said, well, Pontius Pilate was just a figment of the Bible's imagination. He never existed. And they said that for a long, long time. And that's why, uh, I think it was in 1969, uh, uh, all the Bible scholars rejoiced because they were doing some archeological digs in um, Caesarea, uh, there on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. An amazing place. And so we always go there when we do our tour, we go to Caesarea Maritima, which is, um, there's a hippodrome there, just like the, remember the Ben-Hur movie, the chariot race arena? There was one of those, exactly like the Ben-Hur movie, like there was a oval shaped track, uh, just the same width of like the Ben-Hur movies, uh, Cherry Race scene, and they found this thing. Um, uh, and th when they were digging up all the stuff in the archeological digs, they, they found the very place where Herod got eaten up by worms, if you remember your Bible stories. The, the theaters there where Paul preached, like it's really an amazing find, all the, the uh, you know, Caesarea. But probably one of the most important things they found is a stone that was actually used to build something else uh, later, um, but it was a stone that had the full-on inscription about Pontius Pilate and his reign for 10 years uh, there in Jerusalem. And it totally was a record of that. And so it was the first real uh, proof positive that there was a guy named Pontius Pilate 
Um, and, it, and it matched the dates that the Bible claims that Pontius Pilate was there. The reason I, bring, I like to bring that up is <clears throat> you'll, if you young people go off to college and they'll say, well, we know that there was no place like the plain of Dura where in Babylon, you know, they set up a big statue for Nebuchadnezzar, blah, blah, blah. We know, whenever they say we know, just kind of put in there, no, you don't. You think you know. Because uh, that's what they said for years. Uh, Pontius Pilate never really existed. And then we find the stones and, uh, you know, the, remember when Jesus was riding down and they, and they said, stop crying this out. Tell your people to stop saying Hosanna. And Jesus said, if these guys stop, what? The rocks will cry out. They later became a band called the Rolling Stones, but no, just, just kidding, no, no. Even the rocks will cry out, uh, and they are. Like, I love this, archeological digs, the rocks are crying out of the validity of the Bible and the validity of Jesus Christ. Um, I love how archeology span continues to affirm the Bible as accurate and right. Um, wouldn't you think there, there'd be something like, you know, what would you do if suddenly uh, an archeological dig found that, oh, the Bible is totally wrong on something? Um, but actually, that's never happened. Uh, you'd think if the Bible was a fake writing of like so many people claim and it was just a work of man, uh, you'd think there'd be something that we'd find, oh, well, that kind of just undoes all the things the Bible says. But what actually is happening is year after year, dig after dig, the Bible is just confirmed over and over and over again. Well, back to Pontius Pilate. He was a horrible leader um, and he was struggling as a leader. In fact, um, We've learned some more since even then about Pontius Pilate and found some more history about him. There were writings that some people read, like Josephus, uh, who was an ancient first century historian who wrote about Pilate, but they said he was just making it up. That's, that was their line. Um, but as it turns out, there was some interesting stuff about Pilate. Um, and, and here's, I just wanna go over a few of those things because it explains what's going on here a little bit when you realize um, Judea, uh, that area of Jerusalem and Judea was so troublesome for Rome, the Roman Empire struggled. The Jews were a feisty bunch, um, and to say the least, and it would, it would cause them trouble for another 100 years. Um, but, um, but Herod's own son couldn't even control things there. Like that, that's how bad it was. So they send you know, Pontius Pilate, the goof number one that Pontius Pilate made when he, when he came to Jerusalem to rule there, he rides in with, high on his horse with a bunch of Roman soldiers, and you say, well, isn't that what Romans do? Well, the other Roman leaders knew better than to do this, but Pontius was stupid. He comes riding in and they bring these golden standards, these big golden standards with their Roman flags. But on the top, they had these big gold eagles, like golden eagles that were you know, um, you know, carved and covered in gold. Um, uh, how do you think the Jews by this time in the first century responded to uh, things like eagles that were like, looked like idols? You, you gotta remember, the Jews were crushed by their idolatry in the Old Testament. And by the first century, they, they, were, they wanted nothing to do with idols because they, they'd already learned their lesson. So suddenly he marches in there and rides right up to the Temple Mount <laughs> with his golden eagle standards and all that and insignias of Rome. And when the Jews see that, all the, the leaders of Israel there, when, when Pilate rides in, the elders of Israel, the priests, all those guys, came and they laid their necks on the ground and said, kill us, chop, chop off our heads. And, and you know, Pontius Pilate's like, uh, like you want us to kill you? Like, I can't, I can't. You have to understand, he couldn't kill everyone. That would be a bad first day at the office. <laughs> um, in fact, Pilate was given the job to, to figure it out. Like figure out Jerusalem, make those people obey, but don't cause trouble. That was kind of the rule. So suddenly the first day on the job, they're putting their necks on the ground saying, chop our heads off. Uh, that, that, that. And so, so what does he do? <laughs> he cowardly sort of runs away and hides away in his little pilot palace there. Um, and, and the Jews won that little skirmish by, by being willing to die for what they believed in. Well, goof number two, several years later, Pilate builds, he says, I'm gonna help the Jews in their farmlands. I'm gonna build an aqueduct to help with agriculture. Sounds nice, right? Um, it was a good idea. And by the way, some of that Roman aqueduct is still there to this day that he built. It's an amazing uh, construction feat, by the way, bringing water to that region. Um, you say, well, Brad, why didn't the Jews like that? Guess where he got the funding for that? Um, he got it from the temple treasury. He, took, he went to the priest and said, I want your money from the temple treasury. I'm gonna build an aqueduct for the Jews. And so again, the Jews were furious with them. So his little aqueduct, as much as it brought water in, they were furious at And Caligula, who was the leader at that time, told Pilate, 
Caligula said, one more strike and you're out. If you make one more mistake here in Judea, you're done. Um, kind of like that Russian guy who uh, did the coup, who they killed today. Did you guys see the news on that? The question is, is really dead. He's faked his death before, the same guy, this Russian guy. Anyway, it's an interesting story. I, I digress. Um, but that's kind of what's going on. You mess up one more time, you know, you'll be, you'll be out of there, uh, just like, uh, like that. So, um, so, uh, so, so this is where we are now. When Jesus comes on the scene, king of the Jews, causing an uprising in Jerusalem, Pilate's got to figure out how to handle this, and he doesn't want that third strike that would uh, end up doing him in. That's where he is in the story of Jesus. Um, now, what, what happened to Pontius Pilate after the story of Jesus? Um, we don't know for sure. Uh, anybody familiar with Eusebius? Eusebius was kind of like Josephus, uh, wrote about Jewish history and what have you, but Eusebius, he wrote in his book that um, he was exiled after this event. He was exiled out of the Roman Empire, but then he killed himself. That's what Eusebius writes about. Uh, story number two is uh, more of a myth. Um, uh, some writers said that he threw himself, they, they brought him back to Rome, and they, that he threw himself in the, in the river at Rome there. Uh, and every year around the crucifixion time, um, Pontius Pilate's body bubbles up in the, the Roman river there. Um, that's a myth. Um, there is a third story that is interesting. And, and I, I kind of hope secretively, I guess, that this is the one that's real. Um, and, it, and it has to do with uh, church history. Uh, some Christians passed down through the centuries that Pontius Pilate actually became a Christian. Um, and um, his wife may have been converted first, and then she eventually would lead him to know Jesus personally. Um, you say, Brett, why are you hoping that's true? Well, I can hope that for everyone. I mean, we're all sinners, and we all mess up, and, and uh, I kind of feel bad for Pontius Pilate. He was in a horrible situation, uh, and he was kind of in a lose-lose deal, um, but he seemed hesitant to crucify Jesus, and he washed his hands of the situation, uh, I don't know, but, but we'll see. Someday we'll see what happened. When we get to heaven, we can find out. Hey, anybody seen Pontius Pilate around here? Uh, and if he's there, we'll be shocked. We'll be shocked. Um, but the reason I say that, you know, verse six, you know, he's looking to find favor with the Jews. You gotta keep that tucked away in, in the back of your mind. So, so now they got this tradition of releasing a prisoner once a year at Passover. That's, that's where we are. So Pilate he busts out this dude named Barabbas, verse seven. It says, and there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder uh, in the insurrection. It was on January 6th. Uh, no, just, just, just kidding, just a little, little insurrection humor. Um, uh, <laughs> it's funny that word, it's funny how the word insurrection, I, like, I haven't really heard that since the Bible times until just you know, the January 6th thing, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, Barabbas, uh, apparently there was an insurrection and, um, and he, uh, it, when you put all the gospel stories together about this guy, he was a murderer, he was a thief, uh, he was a hated criminal. They, they, they disliked him very much, the Jews. Um, and he was an insurrectionist. Um, so, so Pontius Pilate's thinking, let's get, let's get Barabbas. And you, you kind of can read into it. He, he's thinking, I want them to let go of Jesus. Let's, let's find the, 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 the criminal they hate the most so that we make sure and let this Jesus go free. That, that's kind of what you, you can imply that he's trying to do. Um, uh, to some zealots, uh, Barabbas was, by the way, a hero because he was revolting against the Roman Empire. Um, but that's a different group. Um, you say, okay, what's the deal with this? There's an interesting thing about his name. And maybe you've heard a little bit about this and uh, it's a little hard to deduce what's going on here. But did you know Barabbas, his name was kind of the same as Jesus's? Um, we call, you know, Jesus Christ. Uh, was that his first and last name, Mr. Jesus Christ? Uh, no, it's Jesus, Yeshua is the word. Um, and the word Christ is his title, which is a Messiah or King. Barabbas, his name was Yeshua Barabbas. Um, and this is interesting. Do you know what Barabbas means? This, this is, uh, you know, he, he's this bad dude. Barabbas, the Greek word Barabbas means son of a father. But when you break it down to the uh, Hebrew uh, entomology, um, the, it comes from the Hebrew words bar abba, which means son and father, um, which is kind of interesting. And then, um, so, so it's interesting that 
most scholars believe that it's more like his last name, um, which is part of more of a title, son of the father, is kind of the idea. Um, now, um, if you add Barabbas's first name, it was Yeshua, just like Jesus. So uh, his name meant Yeshua, son of the father. That's kind of an interesting name, isn't it, for a criminal that's, uh, that everybody hates. Um, now you say, okay, Brett, so why would we have a guy with kind of a similar name or the same name? Je, je, you know, Jesus or Yeshua was one of the most common names at the time. Uh, it'd be like, you know, um, you know Scott or, or John or Bill, uh, you know, a common name, right? Um, and that's Jesus. His, he had a very common name. Now, by the way, how do we know his name was Yeshua Barabbas? Uh, uh, there, there exists several versions of this figure's name in the gospel manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts. Most commonly, simply, they put Barabbas without a first name. There are variations, however, of the manuscripts that put Yeshua Barabbas uh, found in different manuscripts. It's Matthew 27, verses 16 and 17. Um, so it's funny that we got, we got Yeshua, the same name as Jesus. Now you say, Brett, why is that? Is there any biblical reason for that? Well, you know, it's a little bit of a picture, if you ask me, of we're the wretched, miserable sinner. We're the thief and the insurrectionist. Uh, we're, the, we're the evil sinners, and Jesus would die in his place, and Barabbas would be set free. Um, it's all a picture, I think, of, of you and I. We're the ones who deserve death, but Christ would take our place. I think that's the connection there. So, um, you know, so Barabbas' full name, Jesus, the son of the father, and he's the one that gets to go, go free, but Jesus the Christ. Um, one caused death and insurrection, one led an insurrection by his own death, Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. I didn't want you to miss that. Well, verse eight, as we go on here, um, um, says, uh, says this, it says, and the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered saying, will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Now we didn't talk about this on Sunday. We did read through all this, but um, Pilate knew that Jesus was there because the religious leaders were envious. That's an interesting little narrative there that they were envious of Jesus. Um, that, that, you know, we, we knew they hated Jesus, but we weren't really sure why. But Pontius Pilate kind of gets that these guys they're threatened by him. They're envious of his, the way that people like him, the way that people are following him. And so they're envious. Uh, envy is destructive. Do you know that? It's one of those things that seems very tame and no big deal. I just really uh, am envious. But envy is a sin in the Bible. Um, D.L. Moody was preaching on envy and he told a, a fable uh, about this that I thought was good. He said an, e an eagle was envious of another eagle that could fly better than he could. One day the bird saw a hunter with a bow and an arrow. And so he flew down and said, I wish you'd bring down that eagle flying up there. And the man said, well, he, he, he would take it down, but, but he needed more feathers for his arrows. And the eagle said, I could do that. And he gives him an arrow uh, feather. And the, the, the hunter puts the feather on the, on the arrow and oh, missed. You know what? I need another feather. Oh, no problem. And he all this because the eagle was envious of his, his buddy eagle that he flew better. So the jealous eagle just kept putting feathers uh, to the, the hunter, but the hunter just kept missing um, uh, because the bird was just flying too high. And the first figure, uh, the first eagle pulls out all the feathers to where so many that he couldn't fly. And he turned around and, um, and, the, and the hunter said, you know what, I really don't need to catch him, I've got you, as he flopped around on the ground and couldn't fly any longer. Um, and Moody's point made this application. If you're envious of others, you will be the one that will be hurt by the actions of your, more yourself. Um, and it's an important thing to remember. Envy does kind of eat away at you. It takes away from you when you're envious. Um, these religious leaders were envious uh, and Pontius Pilate knows that. Now, now this is why some, sometimes you kind of think, why is, why is he always saying king of the Jews and stuff? He's saying it to be sarcastic. Do you know that? Pontius Pilate's like, um, you know, when, when he says, I think it's hilarious in verse, you know, in verse, um, verse nine, but Pilate answered, will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Um, this, this would make them angry. Well, how do you know that, Brett? Um, because of other scriptures um, that talk about this, by the way. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll show you that in a second. Um, but um, 
But, it, but as it turns out, you know, the religious leaders um, were misleading the people. Look at verse, 10, uh, verse 11. But the chief, chief priest moved the people. Remember, Barabbas was hated. They would, they would all want him gone typically. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. Um, this is where religious leaders, whether it's chief priests or pastors or prophets, so-called, or what have you, watch out. Don't just because somebody's a religious leader always listen to what they have to say. These are the religious leaders. The Jews trusted them. And what are they saying? Crucify that guy, let that guy go, which is one of the most horrific decisions ever made in the history of the world. And it was the chief priest who led them in that. And I, I say that because I, I see so many religious leaders today that look good, sound like they know what they're talking about, um, and they're misleading people in the droves in horrible ways. Well, Brett, should we listen to you? My answer to that is absolutely not. What you and I are doing here is talking about the word of God. This, this right here is the authority that, that you and I are leaning on. Uh, this is why it makes me uncomfortable when I, I hear people say stuff like, um, you know, uh, I hear this from people. Uh, you know, they say, well, Pastor Brett said, um, and I always kind of cringe because it doesn't matter what Pastor Brett said. Um, that's why I'm so thankful for you guys and gals that you have your Bibles in your hands here because what you need to be able to say is not, Pastor Brett said this about Judas Iscariot and said this about Pontius Pilate. What you need to do is say, the Bible says, it is written what the Bible says. That's why we're doing what we're doing here. Uh, don't, don't fall for the old religious leader to just believe everything they say, uh, but you gotta act 1711 it, right? Uh, to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures daily and see if what was being said by Paul the apostle was even true or false. Um, so don't go around saying, well, my pastor said, I understand why that's, some people think that's okay, but it makes you look like you don't know anything on your own and it makes me look like a cult leader. So don't do that. Um, <laughs> pastor Brett, um, no, don't say that. Um, uh, I, I'm, I love that we have Athey Creekers with Bibles in hands and the goal is for you to know the scriptures and say, here's what the Bible says uh, and not, not try to you know, quote me or whatever. I'm just saying that just, uh, just because, look, look at this story. There was the religious leaders who were misleading everybody. Well, verse 12, and Pilate answered and said again unto them, what will you then that I should do unto him whom ye call king of the Jews? <laughs> He's rubbing it in their faces because they aren't calling him king of the Jews. Do you understand that? He's saying, you guys are calling, you want me to release your king of the Jews? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Pilate, you know, in Mark's account, it almost seems like he's being a wimp here, but um, he's being more of a smart aleck than anything if you actually bring the other gospels into it. Uh, verse nine, will you release, will, will you that I released you, king of the Jews? Um, by the way, uh, in John's gospel, I'm just gonna remind you of this one, John chapter 19, uh, we learn a little more about this, the sarcasm. Um, John 19, 19, Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This uh, title went, uh, then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Do you get what Pontius Pilate's doing? He's like, you guys, I don't, whatever, you, you losers. Like Pilate's mad at these guys and he's being sort of uh, uh, facetious or sarcastic here. Um, that's why he's saying, you know, what, you want me to release to you your king of the Jews? He's not our king. Uh, I've said it, so there. That's kind of how Pontius Pilate's handling that. Well, uh, verse 15. So Pilate, uh, willing to content the people, that's, that shows weak leadership, by the way, doesn't it? Bad leadership. Don't make decisions based simply on what pleases everyone or trying to make everyone happy, but that's what he's doing. Trying to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Um, verse 15, scourged. We've talked about this in, at length in the Gospel of Matthew. The, the, the flagellum is a whip of the Romans uh, that was just brutal. But there's something, I'm not gonna go into the whip like I did on, on, um, in the study of Matthew. You can go back and look at that if you're interested in that. But, but um, 
again, you know, several prophecies being fulfilled. You can check more boxes here. Isaiah 53, five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we um, are healed. Peter would later quote Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where he would say, by whose stripes you are healed, talking about Jesus being whipped on his back. So the stripes on his back, uh, the, by his stripes we are healed. One of the things we don't talk much about when we really should is not only is there forgiveness of sin at the cross, the shed blood of Jesus, like we talked about on Sunday, but there's also healing. And, and I think we forget by his stripes, you are healed. Healed from what? <clears throat> well, you might say sin, but I would say healed in general because of what the rest of scripture says. There's healing found at the cross and you can find it there too. Uh, whether you're physically sick, emotionally sick or, or weak or in a wreck emotionally. Um, if you're going through tough times and you're wounded by others, there's healing. You know, um, it's interesting, communion is such a key part of, of the uh, Christian experience, is to go to the Lord's table. We did that on Sunday, and we do that regularly here because Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. But in the description that Paul gives about communion, he adds something that correlates to this idea of the stripes on his back, the scourging of his back. There's a healing property that comes from that. Um, in fact, would you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick? Uh, I wanna show you that so you can know where it is in your own Bible. 1 Corinthians 11. Don't worry, we're not gonna finish the chapter tonight. <laughs> Unfortunately. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, Paul the Apostle talking to the Corinthians. And by the way, the Corinthians, um, they were a messed up church. Uh, Paul's always you know, kind of giving them a corrected word, kind of a little spanking here and there because they're just sort of a naughty little church doing communion all wrong and stuff. So this is all to fix their, their problems. Um, but notice his description, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. It says, um, Paul says, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it and in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of, our, of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink that cup. Now pause just for a second, we'll read on. But um, people have taken this to say, well, I have to eat, if I'm gonna have communion, I have to be worthy. Because they read it like this. You, if you eat this bread or drink this cup unworthily, you'll be guilty of the body and blood. Okay, there's a couple things about that. Are you guilty of the blood and body of Christ? Yeah, that's already a done deal. Just, just adds up on that. So what do you mean this drinking unworthily makes you like more guilty? And then it says, but examine yourself. Why do you examine yourself? Here's the idea. It doesn't mean you have to be worthy to take communion. Thank the Lord for that. Because you and I, we're not even close to being worthy, are we? So if you think you can be worthy so that I'm good enough, so now I can, it's like, it'd be like um, if you had cancer and you're at stage four cancer, you say, well, I, before I go to the oncologist, I need to uh, make sure my cancer kind of goes away and it's gone. Then I'll go see the oncologist. That'd be dumb. Communion, you go there because you're unworthy. That's why we remember the Lord's broken body and shed blood. So what does this mean? Well, you might say it like this, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup unworthily, like not giving worth or value to the practice of communion. Unworthily, not giving worth to it, might, you might say it that way. And that's what the Corinthians were doing, by the way. They were, they were coming to the communion line and the wine was there and the bread and they'd gulp down the wine, and they were getting drunk uh, because of the communion service. Um, they were totally misguided. So he's correcting, you gotta come with a heart of reverence and you have to have a worthy attitude is what he's saying here. Uh, none of us are worthy to have communion, uh, but that's the whole point. Okay, so that's an important deal. But then notice what he says, he goes on, verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, 
and many sleep or even are dead is the idea there. Um, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Now, this is where uh, you kind of say, what? Paul says, if you eat or drink unworthily, you're eating damnation to yourself. But th this is an interesting thing. For this cause, many are weak and sickly. I wonder if sickness, some sickness, people are not healthy, just physically. Now, I wouldn't say this every time or all the time, but maybe some of the time. I wonder if people are sick because they don't give reverence and worth and value to the Lord's Supper and communion. Um, you know, there's all these health food people that are into their essential oils and eating kale, stuff I'm not into. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm the picture of health, but, uh, but I'd rather die than eat kale. I, uh, I'm just saying, uh, you have to make choices in life, you know? But have you ever noticed that some of the most healthy-minded people are some of the most sickly people you know? I've just noticed that, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I'm the guy that should be having the heart attack and all that stuff, and maybe I will. I know it's not a bad way to go, but, uh, but, um, but all my healthy friends are having the heart attacks, and like, it's, it's weird sometimes, you know, you kind of see this stuff. But, um, but I wonder if there's a spiritual quality to this idea, by his stripes you are healed. And then Paul associates, many are weak, and sick among you because you don't give real value and worth to the Lord's Supper and table. So if you're, if you're into health stuff, you might start at the cross and say, Lord, I'm, I want you to forgive my sins and save me from, from death and hell. Of course, that's the main thing. But also um, remember by his stripes that were put on his back, there was a healing part to that. And I wanted you to see that because the reverence of the act of communion and giving value to that. That's why Sunday night worship uh, is an important service here at Athey. And a lot of people don't go uh, to that. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying, if you're sick or weak, uh, Sunday night worship is a great time to give worth and value. It's a whole service centered on communion. And it's a place where we have the elders, pastors, some of the leaders, all praying for people for, that are sick, anointing people with oil on Sunday night worship. That's the time where we really focus on that. And maybe instead of trying just medicine or uh, naturopaths or uh, essential oils, maybe you might wanna just uh, come and have prayer and go to the Lord's table. There's healing uh, there. Well, uh, I'm running out of time. Back to Ma uh, Mark chapter 15. Um, verse 16, we're almost done, just a few more verses. Uh, verse 16 says, um, and the soldiers led him away into the hall they called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. So the soldiers are jumping on the pilot bandwagon, calling him, you know, the derogatorily King of the Jews. Uh, little did they know he was the King of all the creation, heaven and earth. Um, by the way, they put purple on him. Why? Um, and what's the, why did they even mention purple? Because purple was the color of royalty. There was, the Romans were into that stuff, you know, the regal uh, gowns and, and military garb and uh, rank and stuff was very, you know, you see all those old movies with the Romans and you'd always have the music, dun dun dun, as they're marching and they got their red fin things and they're, they were really into that, that the look. And so they're, they're mocking him by putting purple because that was the color of royalty. Um, there's parts of this that as I pray about this and meditate on this section of scripture, um, think about this for a second. You know, many hours earlier, they scourged his back with a cat of nine tails, um, which history says that leaves your back basically hamburger meat. Um, uh, you know, uh, his, historians tell us you could see people's organs behind their rib cage uh, where a person was whipped with a flagellum. And um, that's one of the things Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ actually did that grossed everybody out. But that was probably the most accurate view of what a flagellum does. So picture all that, the beating, the bleeding of a back, and then you put a robe on the back of that guy and you mock him and there, I don't know how long you had that robe on, but have you ever had a wound that you put clothes on or over? Uh, and then it's on there for a while, enough to dry blood and, and then ripping that robe back off was part of the torture of what Jesus had to go through. I know we just kind of read this lightly, but they put on a, uh, clothed them with purple. Um, and then it says, verse 19, they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, bowing their knees and worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him 
and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. So, I mean, just, just uh, don't ever forget, like it's, it's a good thing I think to meditate on, to pray through what actually happened at the cross. And um, this is why it's shocking to me that we let, you know, it's funny if, if you uh, insult Muhammad or say a joke about Islam, like that's the unpardonable sin in Hollywood. You don't say anything bad about Islam, but comedians, Hollywood people joke around about Jesus all the time. They use his name in vain. They, you know, it's amazing to me that we as Christians just kind of mouse around when people say bad things about Jesus um, and we're afraid somehow. Um, but when I think of what Jesus did for me, um, I, it's getting harder for me to just stand by um, and just act like it's no big deal when people talk about Jesus. I'm not saying punch people in the face, but I am saying um, maybe to, you know, <laughs> years and years ago, I was, I was in the uh, weight room lifting weights with my pastor. Uh, uh, we were, um, uh, you know, doing the bench and stuff. And, um, and some guy was slamming weights around. He dropped something, I think, on his foot. And he said, you know, Jesus Christ. And, and then my pastor started singing, Jesus, what a wonder you are. You know that old song? And everybody's looking at him like, what a weirdo. But uh, John's answer was to, to let people know Jesus was his savior and Lord, and everybody kind of piped down and stuff. John was one of the biggest guys in the weight room, so it was <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? You know what I mean? It was kind of funny, so that was kind of fun. But, um, but that was years and years ago. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, um, yeah, um, I, I don't know that we should, you know, people are all upset about their pronouns, um, sh should we be a little perturbed when people, you know, use our Savior's name in vain? Um, you know, I mean, uh, what do we do about that? That's something for you to pray about, um, you know. Well, anyway, uh, all that to say, uh, we're, we're only into verse 20. We'll pick up verse 21 uh, starting uh, next week as we go through the gospel. Lord, as we uh, think on these scriptures, uh, we're again humbled and... Um, reminded of how glorious the work of the cross really is and, and uh, how humbling it is for us to think that you endured the cross, despised the shame with joy that was set before you. Um, Lord, we wanna be good servants, good followers. Show us how to act in these days where people use your name in vain and we don't wanna get tied up in the wrong behaviors, but we also, um, Lord, don't wanna lose boldness. Your word tells us the wicked flee when no one's pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So give us boldness in these days to speak truth, to represent you well, to be salt and light in this dark world. Um, I pray that we wouldn't be so familiar with this story that we lose its power. Um, but I pray that as we study this, that once again, we'd love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength for what you've done for us. So bless these folks here, those online tonight with us. Uh, may this word uh, just bring good fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.